Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley, and welcome back to Thread, episode 96. Thread, God's truth tying together all the pieces of your life. Thread is the broadcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley. Thread. Well, today on this episode of Thread, we're going to be talking about movements and the early church as a movement and what goes into being a leader. Thread is a podcast for leaders where we give you solid Bible truth verse by verse as we're moving uh, in this season through the book of Acts because leaders need a different kind of mind food than other people do. Leaders are in charge of making change happen. And people don't don't really like change to happen. So leaders have to fill their mind with a certain kind of thinking so they can be prepared to do a great job as a leader, whether you're leading at home or leading uh, in a church or in a ministry or whatever God has you in his ministry. Uh, at Thread, we want to be here for you. And uh, I personally just love the opportunity to pour into other people, especially emerging young leaders and to see God at work in their life, to see the good things that are coming about. Um, in, uh, in Acts chapter 11, which is where we're at right now, um, we've got the situation that came up when Peter uh, stretched out because the Holy Spirit made him, and he became multicultural. And up to this point, Christianity was for Jews only, and there was a very strong conservative movement Within the Jerusalem church, they had actually taken it over somehow, and Peter is no longer the leader. He's having to answer to them, and they call him to account for going into the home of a Gentile named Cornelius and for preaching the gospel to him, and Cornelius was not only preached to, but he accepted the Lord, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and was baptized in water. And then Peter stayed as he should have, and he ate food, and he fellowshiped with these new brothers, and that got him in trouble, if you can believe that, but it did. And so now, uh, you know, Peter, in our last episode, uh, went before the Jerusalem council that, you know, now feels so empowered that they can call him to answer for his actions when the Lord left him in charge. And as I said last time, I would love to get a hold of that missing piece of church history. I wish I knew how that ever happened, but anyhow, it did. Um, and Peter gave them the explanation. God did this. I obeyed the Lord. Who was I to say no to God? He wants Gentiles in his church. And when he explains that the same miracle power flowed to them, they also spoke in tongues. They also had a visitation from the same Holy Spirit. Verse 17, who was I to withstand that from God? And verse 18 says, they heard it, became silent, and they glorified God and said, well, then God has also granted to the Gentiles that they should have repentance to life. Well, at this point in church history, there has been uh, there have been different persecutions, and one of those was when Stephen was stoned in the temple area, and this uh, caused an outbreak of persecution. This is prior to this scene, and that outbreak caused the people from the Jerusalem church to go all over the uh, ancient Middle East, just looking for safety. But when they went, they didn't just keep their tails uh, tucked in and their heads down. They went preaching. But they went preaching only in Jewish synagogues, verse 19 says. Verse 20, I love, but some of them, thank God for these people, 
who have the ability to get outside of the narrow confines that they've been raised in. And so, but some of them were men who were from Cyprus and Serene, and these are more multicultural towns. So by circumstance, uh, these, uh, these brothers had grown up in a more multicultural setting, and they began to speak to the Hellenists. Uh, so no longer just to Jewish synagogues, no longer just to Jewish people. We've now got our first example of evangelism intentionally going outside of the Jews. Now, this is uh, the Hellenists are kind of a mixed up group. They're blended families. They may have uh, a Jewish family member, father or mother. Their boys have, have not been circumcised. They're Greek in their mindset. They have Jewish connections. They have an attraction to the, the unique theology of the Jews, which is that there is one God. Uh, but these are, they're just a mixed crowd. And, you know, Jesus said that the gospel would go first Jerusalem, hardcore inner circle of Jews, then Judea, very loyal uh, Jews, just a little bit outside of the Jerusalem inner circle. And then he said, and then the gospel will reach Samaria. And Samaria, we already saw a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. It's already been recorded. And Samaritans are half-blood people also. So this is an example of, um, I guess, what in, what in evangelism you'd call E2. Uh, E0 is when you evangelize people in your group. They're exactly like you. For example, you're evangelizing people in church. They go to church. They attend church. They're in the Christian circle, but they just don't follow Jesus. And uh, that's the Jerusalem and maybe the Judea style of evangelism. Then there's E1, uh, and these are missiological terms. Uh, E1 is somebody just outside your circle, and that's what's happened here. They have reached just outside of the typical tight relational cultural Jewish circle, and verse 21 says they struck oil. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of Hellenists believed and turned to the Lord. So, um, you know, this is really beautiful. It's the result of intentional evangelistic activity, yet you can never tell when you'll hit a pocket of receptivity. And these brothers have stumbled into um, a harvest field. Sherry and I went to the Philippines in 1990. We planted a church with 14 people. And in one year, we saw 100 people come to Christ and into the fellowship. Now imagine the impact of having a hundred of your friends call you to say, we're pregnant, you know, and then going to watch their one by one, watch them have their babies all in one year. It was an amazing year for us. And it started us on uh, an 18 year time of serving in the Philippines. And we saw all kinds of things. More people came to the Lord than we've ever seen at any other time in our life. Now, we praise God on verse 22 because this time the Jerusalem church does not drop the ball. When they hear that these sort of half-Jewish, half-Gentile people are wildly receiving the gospel, verse 22 says, News of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas and told him to go as far as Antioch. So uh, it's, it's a really great response by the Jerusalem church and an excellent choice of who they sent. They sent a generous man 
with an upbeat, nurturing tone about him. We've already met Barnabas in the scriptures before. He sacrificed his piece of property and he laid that at the apostles' feet uh, and so that they could feed the hungry people among them. He's a man that, he's just a good guy. He's a secure man, and he's an encouraging man. Now, if they had sent a hardcore legalist down there, they could have killed this whole movement. But thank God they've, they're thinking, you know, harvest, and they're participating. They're not coming there in, you know, in large numbers, but they are... Uh, supporting the kind of pastoral help that this church needs at this season in its life. And when Barnabas came, verse 23 says, Barnabas saw the grace of God that was working, and he was glad. And he encouraged them all with that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. And then verse 24 gives us a little description of what Barnabas was like as a person. It says, he was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was full of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Thank God when when we get a positive person in our life, uh, God sends somebody to us. We're looking for truth, and we find truth, and more than truth, we find encouragement and love and faith. The Bible says he was full of the Holy Spirit. He had the gifts and the power of God operating And he was full of faith. He was confident in God's ability and in God's character. And he just brought, you know, this good energy and good attitude with him. And it's contagious because other people start to pick it up. And this church has a very positive, faith-filled, upbeat spirit from this point on. They are an assertive church. And uh, that's what faith is really all about, is to give you the courage to do risky things. And this church has the faith and they start moving out. And as Barnabas sees growth, he recognizes that he needs help, that this church needs a leader and that he needs uh, someone to assist him in pastoral care. And so Barnabas leaves and goes to Tarsus to seek for Saul, who had you know, the, this chapter opens saying after the stoning of Stephen, a great persecution broke out, and that eventually led to this uh, this great soul-winning adventure. And Paul was actually on the other side. He was part of the stoning of Stephen on the conservative Jewish side. And he was actually one of the persecutors that flushed this church out of uh, being confined in Jerusalem and, and forced it. Uh, to run and then spread that gospel fire all through uh, the area of Palestine and that Middle Eastern zone. So Barnabas has gone looking for Paul. Barnabas has always been up on Paul. You know, he has been promoting Paul. And, you know, this is part of um, this is part of being in authority. It's one of the nice parts of being in authority, you know, that God has, and I've, I've been able to serve like this for about 15 years now, where you have a voice and you have authority, and uh, you're no longer so concerned about your own image and how well you do and being the star on the stage. You know, I guess that's your 20s and 30s. You're trying to make a name for yourself. You want people to know that you're competent and hardworking and, you know, it, it, it's you have a little more focus on yourself. Then you hit your 40s and you realize, okay, 
I know about how much I can do, but what really matters more in your mid-40s and then your 50s are all about this. Uh, I need to spot the new talent younger than me, and I need to help those guys get a good open door, get the training they need, get the opportunity to use their gifts. And, uh, and Barnabas has always been trying to promote Paul. He was the one that saw Paul as a potential leader after Paul accepted the Lord and stopped being a persecutor and became part of the Christian group. You know, that was 13 years ago, more than. Um, he saw Paul. He brought him to the apostles. Everybody rejoiced that their number one persecutor had himself accepted Christ. But for some reason, there was little chemistry between Paul and the Jerusalem leadership. They never really embraced him. They didn't give him a role among them. They didn't nurture him even as a young man to say, yes, okay, let's, let's bring you up. And at some point he leaves, he, he actually writes about this in Galatians. Uh, he leaves the Jerusalem church circle, a little bit frustrated at the, at the uh, close-mindedness of the leadership. And he goes back home to a quiet life. And he's sitting on the bench for 13 years. I mean, this is 13 years that you've got a guy who's the leading, one of the leading scholars in the world, trained you know, at what would have been their Harvard, uh, to understand the Old Testament, zealous for the Lord, and not being used at all, not for a year, but for 13 years. Just learning to listen to the Lord. And to wait patiently for his leading. Because, you know, Paul did have uh, a bit of pride. He talks about it. And, uh, you know, he's an aggressive person. He's a hard-faced person. Uh, in some ways, he, do, he does not mind conflict. And so, you know, if a guy like that is self-willed and then enters the ministry, he's just going to be a lot of problems. And so I think this is a time that God had, and it took 13 years, which to God, it doesn't matter, you know. He prepared Jesus for 30 years for a three- or four-year ministry. And so here's Paul, who's been 13 years after graduating, Ph.D., you know, part of the, the highest circles of, of Jewish learning. And now Paul's on the bench making tents for 13 years, uh, just being quiet. And, you know, God did that to me, but thank thankfully for just one year. Uh, when I was young, I, he called me the ministry when I wasn't even 20. And I was so anxious to get started. And I was looking for opportunities and places to minister and you know chances to speak. And the Lord was very, very clear with me. You say nothing, you go nowhere, you do not speak until I give you permission. And I remember just praying for a year in this hunger to do the ministry growing in me. And knowing in my heart that to go and do it would be disobedience, that I had to wait until I was ready inside until he released me. And, you know, one of the teachings of Jesus, and actually you will, you will not find anybody in the ancient world lifting up meekness as like a super high virtue. This is a unique Jesus teaching. Meekness means, uh, in one man's definition, a God-tamed man, you know, that you are, meekness is not weakness. If you're weak, you can't be meek even if you want to. You're just weak. But if you're strong now, that's when meekness becomes 
a part of your life, or at least it's possible. Meekness means you put the bit and the bridle on yourself, you place them in God's hands, and you allow God to direct you. And you're strong and you got abilities, but you don't lead by your abilities. You let God direct you and you just wait and let the Lord teach you and train you and urge you. And Paul has learned. God has reined him in. And now Paul is just sitting there. He was so zealous. He thought, actually, you know, when you see the story of his conversion, he goes to preaching immediately. I mean, like within a week or two, he is out there in the synagogues making war uh, in the name of the Lord. And God just puts him on the bench for 13 years and says, just you got a wrong spirit on this. I know you're excited, but I just I need to get control of you. And now in verse 26, thank God, this season is over. Paul is off the bench and he's back in the game. And he is so excited about being in the ministry. And he and Barnabas are this really great ministry team because Paul is a teacher. He's been trained strictly. He's been trained with excellence. He's dogmatic. He's got like a, an, an edge to him. And, you know, that's important. Everybody can't be a, you know, a fuzzy or a marshmallow and... We need those kind of people, but we need some people that have an edge. Paul says right and wrong, and he's got a line. He believes in um, principles, and he will fight over principles. And that's good to have in your teacher. I don't want a fuzzy teacher. Uh, And that gift is needed now. Now, Barnabas, on the other hand, although he can teach, and Paul talks about how people love Barnabas as their leader. He mentions that in Corinthians. But Barnabas is a lover. He's an encourager. He's a consoler. And the church grew in Antioch because they had the balance of these two gifts. You had that uh, dogmatic, strong teacher, and you had someone to balance it with equal energy uh, as a loving, caring, nurturing person. And uh, this makes for a good ministry marriage, frankly. Uh, So if you find yourself uh, a little bit uh, of a, a warrior, you might want to look for a partner who can help soften you a bit. Uh, I, I did, and it has worked out really well for me. Uh, verse 26 says, um, And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And I guess the only uh, modern word we could say would be Jesus freaks. They were called Jesus freaks in Antioch. Uh, People knew they were studying Christ. And Paul understood the core of his gospel was, I am here to preach Jesus. Um, Now, here's where the Jerusalem church steps up again. And man, they did. They do two good things in a row. Verse 27 says, they sent prophets. Uh, It says, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, for me, this is real support from Jerusalem because the Jerusalem church longs to hear about supernatural manifestations in this church because the same thing happened in Samaria. The Samaritan church was planted. They had the doctrine. They had the repentance. They had the conversion, but there wasn't very much of a flow of supernatural power in that place. And it bothered the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Peter to go down himself and lay hands on people. And the Lord did pour out these gifts. So it was not okay with the Jerusalem church that you could just be a doctrinal Christian and have no experience of the power of the Holy Spirit to cast out demons, heal the sick, 
uh, banish oppressions from people's lives and set people free, they understood we're engaged in a spiritual war against demonic powers and principalities. And if you're going to be a Christian, you are fighting against those principalities and you have to have the inner equipping to be able to rise up and fight them and tear them down, not just fight a defensive war, but expand into areas, expand into people's lives with the gospel and bring bring liberty, bring salvation. So they're expecting to see more of the supernatural and they send prophets down. And I thank God for, uh, I'm Pentecostal and I'm not embarrassed about that. Um, prophetic words have been so encouraging to me through my life. And there's times that God has sent somebody who gave me a word and that word helped me find direction. We need this gift in the church. And the scripture is very clear that we are not to despise prophesying. We're to love it. And we're to encourage these gifts. Because if you don't stir these gifts up, you just become a rationalist church. Uh, you, you think faith is about a mental belief. And we have a whole lot of doctrinal Christians who have no power of God operating in their life. And because of that, they're bound with pornography. They're bound with, you know, they're just a mess. Uh, just like the people of the world. And that starts to be what the church is. We need supernatural power and authority. And I thank God for the gift of anointed words. Now, of course, we need common sense about this. But I'm not even going to say anything about that because the common sense part is so natural, so normal. And I think there's there's a born-in skepticism about things like this with most of us. And we test it and we look for it. So... I don't think the church generally has a problem. You know, there might be some pockets of Christians that are crazy Christians and uh, they need to get some balance on this. But most of the church, the balance is they don't have any opening for for the move of the Holy Spirit or prophetic gifts. And they need to get balanced by moving more toward it. We know that this gift is for edification. That means it builds you up, not for entertainment. This is not a sensationalized thing. Uh, this is people who earnestly seek God and who are used by God to bring uh, wisdom and encouragement to the body of Christ. Now, these brothers brought something even more, and that was predictive prophecy. In verse 28, Agabus stood, and Agabus has a, you know, it, he just kind of pops up in the book of Acts at different points when God needs a voice to say, I want to reveal the future uh, he taps Agabus often, and Agabus, you know, a lot of times guys who have that gift, they're not, mm, they're not somebody you just go bowling with or something. I mean, they they're they may be a little bit different, but thank God for them and for their willingness, like Old Testament prophets, to live a life that is a different kind of life. And Agabus says, "Thus says the Lord," verse twenty-eight. There's going to be a great famine; it'll go through the whole world. And somehow in his prophecy, he, he mentions the way it will impact the Jews in Jerusalem. And that moves the brothers in Antioch who are so grateful. They feel bonded to Jerusalem because of the ministry of Barnabas and Paul and Agabus and perhaps some others that came and went who were unnamed. And so they raise an offering. It touches their heart and their heart is moved and they raise money to send back to help the Jerusalem church. And sure enough, uh, history tells us in 46 AD, there was such a famine. So I think what we've seen in this passage is 
uh, effective extension evangelism. A strong mother group spinning off some daughter groups. Um, And uh, I want to encourage you to start something. If you're part of a group at all, whether it's a church or a ministry or, you know, in our case, we're, uh, we train media missionaries uh, here in Asia. And the, the reason we are able to train media missionaries is because Graham and Diane Vermouten in South Africa, where I went to media school at Media Village, they got behind us. I told them what we wanted to do in Asia. They got excited about that, and they were able to use the, the, mainly the personnel resources and the training methodology that they had hammered out over 18 years and had become natural rote memory for them, uh, they were able to bring that up and to say, okay, we're going to invest that in you and we're going to help you get started. And so for the first year or two of our existence, they were regulars here. Uh, We called on them a lot and they were able to, uh, we had some teachers that came from their school. They taught themselves here. And just even the, even the spiritual uh, impartation, like uh, sort of the laying on of hands of a ministry that Graham and Diane had had for all these years, you know, that they were able to come here and that they were willing to uh, help us get our start. Because that's really how things happen in ministry and in life is that somebody who already has gained strength passes it on to somebody else. And so I want to encourage you, start an outreach, start an outreach of some kind. Uh, Use your existing ministry assets to launch other people when you spot opportunities for growth. Well, that's all for this time. I'm Chuck Quinley, and if you'd like to talk to me, I would love to talk to you. My email is simple, chuck at quinley.com. I would love to hear from you. God bless you. Till next time on Thread.